when are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. Today we have an amazing interview with Fadel Kaboob of the Gonzaga Institute. And that lasted about two hours. So rather than us continuing to talk here, we're just going to get right to that interview and then have the rest of it in our Extra Mad section of our podcast. That is coming up right here on Hopping Mad. We're back on Hopping Mad. Before I ever met Dr. Fadil Kaboob, I made a point of reading everything I came across which had his name on it. I met Dr. Kaboob then at the Modern Monetary Theory Conference in Kansas City last summer after he gave one of the most compelling presentations of the conference. Fadil Kaboob is the president of the Binsager Institute for Sustainable Prosperity as well as an associate professor of economics at Denison University. His research focuses on political economy of the Middle East and the fiscal and the fiscal and monetary policy dimensions of job cre- creation programs. He is a widely published author, and his recent work has been presented at many prestigious institutions, including the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, Harvard Law School, Cornell University, Columbia University, the Sorbonne, the National University of Singapore, and now on Hopping Mad. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Kaboob. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. I want to start out near the beginning. You got your undergraduate degree in economics at the University of Tunis and then your master's and PhD in economics from the University of Missouri, Kansas City. It's definitely the road less traveled. How did UMKC catch your eye? Well, I was um, I was looking for a, a graduate program in, in economics, and you know, growing up in, in Tunisia, the traditional path is to move to France and uh, and do graduate studies in France. But I was looking for something different, you know, culturally and politically, and and also intellectually. So I thought the U.S. will be, uh, you know, quite a bit of a change from from Europe. Uh, English is not a is not a common language when when I was growing up in in Tunisia. We're we're very close to Italy and France culturally, um, so I wanted to learn English. And I thought, well, let's let's find something interesting. I I wasn't looking for the most um, how should I say I wasn't looking for MMT or anything of that sort. I wasn't even familiar with with that stuff. But I was familiar with uh, alternative. Uh, ideas and alternative um, schools of economic thought, like post-Keynesian economics and uh, institutional economics. Um, so I was, I was drawn to UMKC because it already had that tradition for a long time. And my arrival in Kansas City in, in January of 2000 was right at the beginning of the boom of the post-Keynesian and the MMT movement in, in Kansas City. This was right when the Center for Full Employment and Price Stability was was created. It was launched just a few months before I arrived there. And the universe, the department was hiring people like Randy Ray and Stephanie Kelton and Matt Forstatter and Fred Lee uh, and Jan Kregel. So it was already, you know, drawing uh, so many of the major contributors to post-Keynesian economics, not just as faculty, but as visiting faculty and conferences and speakers. So 
so it was it was a magical place to be a graduate student in in those years in in Kansas City, uh, and 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 as they say, the the rest is history. It, I I envy you being there during that period of time. So, trade was a bit of a topic this week, and we did in fact our very first special midweek show on it earlier in the week, and I wanted to ask you to explain why export-led growth is not always a good thing, particularly for developing economies. Right. So if, um, if you look at developing countries, and I'll, I'll refer to Tunisia as a case study because it's a country that I um, refer to the most in, in my work and I'm most familiar with, but what, what you're going to hear about Tunisia, um, you'll very quickly realize that it applies to so many other developing countries. So developing countries, for for those of us who understand what MMT is about, what financial sovereignty is about, which the U.S. has full financial sovereignty. So you have to realize that in order for a country to have full financial sovereignty and, and really enjoy the, the policy space that MMT says um, we can afford, you have to have four conditions applying. Number one, uh, a country that uh, that prints its own currency, and that's easy. That's true for the U.S., for Tunisia, for any country, most countries. Number two, a country that also collects taxes denominated in its own currency, in its own sovereign currency. That's also pretty easy. Most developing countries can do that. But it's really conditions three and four that are the most difficult for developing countries, and that relates to the trade issue that we're uh, talking about today. So number three, you have to be a country that never issues bonds that promise to pay back in a foreign currency. Uh, in other words, all the national debt has to be denominated in your national currency, which is the case of the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia. But you look at developing countries, they issue bonds denominated in the national currency, but they also issue bonds that promise to pay back in euros and dollars and Japanese yen and British pounds. And they have to do that because they have structural trade deficits. And I'll, I'll come back to the structural trade deficit point because this is really the, the, the root of the problem for many developing countries. So if you import more than what you export structurally, um, you, you end up losing part of your financial sovereignty. And then number four is really also related to number three. You have to have a country that adopts a flexible exchange rate policy meaning you allow your currency to fluctuate against other currencies based on market conditions without any specific intervention, artificial intervention, to fix the exchange rate to a particular currency or sets of currencies. So most developing countries, because they have structural trade deficits and they have so much external debt, they constantly have pressure to devalue their exchange rate because those are the market forces. They put downward pressure on their exchange rate, and that creates a lot of significant problems that I can, that can expand on in a minute. But in, 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 in a way, they're forced to adopt a relatively fixed exchange rate policy to avoid all kinds of inflationary problems and social unrest and political uh, problems that are related to um, imported inflation. So if you have those four conditions like the U.S. or the U.K. or Canada or Australia or Japan, you can enjoy all the fiscal policy space that the MMT literature talks about. And when I learned this stuff in, in grad school, I was like, this is, this is fantastic, but how about developing countries? At the time, there wasn't really a lot of specific MMT discussion about you know, the specific uh, structural issues that developing countries face. So that's what drew me to kind of taking the MMT literature and trying to dig deeper into the root causes of these deficiencies that developing countries face. 
so now to sorry this is a long way to answer your question about no <laughs> about take your time so now when you look at the uh, the reason why developing countries have this structural trade deficit you start digging and looking at the numbers and you realize that it's really three major sources of this structural trade deficit number one it's food deficiency food production deficiency so most developing countries unlike what most people think they actually import a lot more food than what they export, uh, increasingly so these days. Number two, they have uh, energy production deficiency. So they import a lot of um, uh, energy uh, to produce electricity, fossil fuels, basically, to, to produce electricity. Um, with the exception of a few countries that, that happen to be OPEC members or you know oil exporters. And number three... They have a manufacturing uh, industrial deficiency in the sense that whatever they manufacture happens to be low-value-added content manufacturing, so uh, essentially an assembly line type of factory. And what they import is high-value-added content, so industrial machinery, computers, cars, trucks, all kinds of electronic equipment. So if you're importing the high-value-added content and you're exporting low-value-added content, the net effect is, is negative. So you take these three components and you realize that year after year after year, developing countries are stuck in this structural trade deficit situation. And if you have a trade deficit, it means that your currency will be forced downward. The value of your currency will be forced down relative to the dollar and the euro, which means if, if your government doesn't intervene and do anything, the next morning you try to import food or medicine or anything from abroad, you're going to be importing it with a cheaper currency. And as a result, you'll be importing it at a much higher price, relatively speaking. So you're actually importing inflation. And if you're importing food at an inflated price and energy at an inflated price, you're setting yourself up for food riots and for you know social unrest because the cost of living for the poorest segment of the population that relies on you know, basic uh, food for nutrition and basic public transportation for transportation and electricity consumption and so on, your, your economy will be, will be shredded apart. And that's why developing countries avoid that situation and end up artificially fixing their exchange rate. And in order to artificially fix your exchange rate, you have to borrow in foreign currencies to artificially pay for your trade deficit. So that's that's the that's the classic situation. The trap that continues to keep these developing countries in that situation is the policy prescription that their policymakers follow and that institutions like the World Bank and the IMF in particular try to try to impose and the World Trade Organization and the United States and the European Union kind of the policy advice is the following. In order to, you know, fix your economy, you need to turn your economy from a net importer to a net exporter. So follow strategies that encourage exports. And the, the problem here is that what, what we've discovered over the decades is that the faster you try to accelerate your export machine, the more trade deficit you actually end up having because, because of the deficiency that I just described. If your structure is based on assembly line type of production, then the more you try to produce in that assembly line, the more inputs and intermediate goods you have to import. So you're importing more high-value-added content and you're exporting more low-value-added content. So you're digging yourself into a deeper hole. Not only that, but you end up importing more fossil fuels to run your industrial machine. 
you're also told to rely on tourism because tourism brings dollars to the economy. Well, tourism requires a lot of additional spending on infrastructure, a lot of electricity consumption, a lot of water consumption, especially for countries that w- suffer from droughts, and a lot of transportation and a lot of entertainment that consumes a lot of electricity and water and, and food. So that adds to food imports, fossil fuel imports, and you're racing to the bottom because every other developing country around you is also trying to do the same. So the competitive forces are forcing you to lower your cost of doing business in the tourism industry, and that's typically done by subsidizing the hotel industry, by subsidizing them at a lower cost for electricity, for water, for transportation, and so on. So essentially, again, you're digging yourself in, into a deeper hole. So all of these strategies that, that are typically coming from um, the, the neoliberal you know, political economy world end up really making the problem worse in the long run and, and continuing this, this vicious, vicious cycle. And as, uh, as many MMTers usually say, when you know, I think Warren Mosler said this at, at the conference, he said, if you're in a deep hole and you're digging, the first thing you need to do is to stop digging and figure out a different way to get out of that hole. And, and that's really my, my approach to this is to say, you know, accelerating tourism and accelerating foreign direct investment and accelerating export-led growth is really digging those countries deeper into that problem. And the only way to reverse that trend is to actually tackle the problem at its roots, which is if, you're, if you have a deficiency in food production, then your number one strategy should be investing in sustainable domestic food production so you don't have to import as much food. And anyway, you'll get better quality food and you'll, get, and you'll fight climate change and you reduce your carbon footprint and you improve quality of life for people and quality of nutrition for, for people. Number two, if the second deficiency is, is fossil fuel imports and that's keeping your economy down and keeping the country deeply in debt and debt denominated in foreign currencies, then your strategy should be investing in sustainable, renewable energy production locally. And that includes, by the way, architecture and design and going back to using local materials for construction and relying on geothermal ventilation as opposed to you know, building with bricks and cement and, and having to air condition and heat um, uh, all of the housing stock in, in the country by importing fossil fuels to, to run this. And this is also true even for the oil exporting countries, the biggest oil exporting countries. I mean, Saudi Arabia is consuming, you know, a huge chunk of its oil production domestically just for cooling, you know, and air conditioning uh, and, and running its, uh, its industrial system in addition to, you know, uh, transportation uh, consumption for for fossil fuels. So for for the for the average developing country, this is a huge problem. And in in this day and age, with the most recent development in uh, energy efficiency, with the most recent development in in solar and wind and geothermal and 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 hydro and and including storage technology, um, we're we're not even close to to the point where we say we really need to worry about storage. I mean, there's plenty of room to grow um, uh, renewable energy production to get us to the point where we have to worry about the stability of the grid and the storage. Um, but the, the technologies are there, um, and they're not, uh, it's, it's not rocket science anymore, um, which means developing countries need to dedicate more of their educational resources, research and development, into solving domestic problems that 
really address the root causes of these deficiencies. And then the third deficiency is the most challenging one, because, uh, and that's the deficiency in terms of value-added content, because that requires investing in education, vocational training, uh, engineering skills, research and development, so that the country gradually moves up the, the value-added chain, so to speak. You move from lower value-added content to higher value-added content, so that when you're, when you're, even when you're trying to attract foreign direct investment, you start attracting a different kind of foreign direct investment, the, the foreign direct investment that actually leverages your uh, domestic uh, labor skills, uh, high-value-added skills. Uh, in the same way that uh, the U.S. and Canada and Australia attract that kind of investment. Most foreign direct investment around the world goes from rich country to rich country. It doesn't actually go from rich to poor countries. Um, so that's another myth that most people have, that foreign direct investment only goes to developing countries. It's the, it's the low-value-added stuff that goes to developing countries. But the high-tech stuff goes from rich country to rich country. And that's where developing countries need to have a long-term vision for you know, uh, sort of a skipping a generation in terms of technological development and moving to the high value added content. And the only way to do it is by investing in education and training. But the problem is that we're told that, you know, you can't afford subsidizing education anymore. You can't afford doing this because you have to pay the debt, right? Because you have to balance the budget is because the government has to cut spending and privatize education and privatize healthcare. And those are the exact policies that keep developing countries in deeper into that hole that I that I described earlier. So I want to jump way down in my question list and and talk because I I have a bunch of questions actually about a number of the things that you touched on, but I want to come down to um, in Ohio, I th where you're located right now. I think that you can say the words climate change out loud, but here in rural Indiana, next door to you. Um, that's yeah. not always safe. So um, <laughs> your reference to climate change debt swap would make some people's heads explode, but I'm pretty good with their heads exploding. So would you explain what that means and how that might feed into the um, the debt issue when it comes to repayment to um, the nations that are holding bonds, basically? Uh, so... Let me let me see if I understand you correctly. Which which bonds are you referring to? Oh, the um, the bonds denominated in foreign currency. In other words, debt you owe to the United States, or debt Tunisia owes to the United States, or debt Tunisia owes to the EU, oh. can be oh. paid in um, as you refer to oh, it, I, climate I, change debt swap. And I think that's an incredibly brilliant idea because the idea of getting wealthy nations to forgive debt when they're entirely staffed by neoliberal economists is like pulling teeth. Right. right. So I, I see what you're referring to. So at, at the conference, I made a reference to, to some of these strategies to um, begin the process of, um, of uh, canceling some of the debt owed by developing countries to, to the developed world. And I, and I uh, carefully use the term debt cancellation as opposed to debt forgiveness um, because forgiveness implies you've done something wrong and we're forgiving right. you for it. Um, this, is, this is more of a, a debt cancellation process. Um, so, for example, 
example, in, in, the, in the latest uh, series of negotiations about climate change in, in Paris and other places, um, I mean, the Industrial Revolution contributed massively to the production of uh, CO2 emission in, in, in the atmosphere. And as a result, you can imagine that England was, was the, one of the major contributors to it. But the, the line of defense that the, that the uh, British representative used is that, well, at the time we didn't know about climate change, so we can't be forced to pay for something, you know, for some damage that we didn't know existed. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't be penalized more heavily than, than the rest of the world. So we should all contribute to a climate fund equally, uh, as opposed to, you know, whoever contributed most to the emissions should, should pay for it. Um, so this is, I have a problem with that. Yes, uh, me too. <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, so there's, and, and, and let me give you another point of information here just to um, allow the, the, the listeners to, to have this uh, contextualized a little bit. If you take, uh, today, if you take the global flows of financial resources, and let's say we divide the, the world in two units, the rich countries and poor countries. Most people have this view that you know, most of the money flows from rich countries to poor countries. So, and here I'm talking about all flows, trade, uh, financial aid, uh, loans, interest payment, uh, foreign direct investment, all of this. And you actually realize that uh, for the last, um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but at least a couple of decades, the amount of money, the net flows of funds are going from poor countries to rich countries at the tune of $600 billion a year. And this includes charities and donation and all kinds of things that we're giving aid to the developing world. The net effect of all transactions is that poor countries are actually sending money, $600 billion a year, to rich countries. So number one, we have something fundamentally wrong with the global picture in terms of where money is going. Uh, so there's a lot of extraction of wealth from developing countries that's happening. Uh, some of it is literally extraction of natural resources, but it's you know extraction of um, of, uh, of um, monetary um, flows from from developing countries. So one of the little programs that the UN had for a while, um, because this this developing countries debt crisis began in the 1980s and intensified in the 1980s, and then we sort of managed to tame it down a little bit in the, in the last couple of decades. But it's still fundamentally the same debt crisis of the 1980s. So one of the little programs that was quite successful in the 1980s, unfortunately it was relatively small scale, was the following. It's a debt cancellation program because you have all kinds of UN agencies doing humanitarian work and development work in, in, in the developing world, um, agencies like UNICEF and agencies like UNDP. So let's say UNICEF is doing an educational program in a developing country. Um, they're hiring local teachers, they're building little schools, they're buying supplies for the, for the kids to, to go to school, and, and that's the educational program that they're putting in. And let's say that program that they're doing costs them you know, $10 million uh, to implement. But everything that they're spending money on is really done at the local level. So they're not importing materials from abroad. Everything is local. The teachers are local. They're paid locally. They're trained locally. Everything is local. But let's say that particular developing country has a debt to Bank of America of $10 million, let's say. So the debt swap in this case, the UN will enter into an agreement with with uh, with this particular bank, let's say Bank of America, will say, look, 
you, um, uh, this country owes you $10 million. They're not going to be able to, to pay it. They're in deep trouble economically and, and politically and so on. And we, the UN, are spending $10 million worth of you know, development funds in this country. How about you consider the $10 million that you expect from this country as a charitable donation to the UN, tax-deductible donation, and then we'll use our funds to do the program locally anyway, and this way, the, that portion of the debt is canceled, and you, Bank of America, get to claim this as, as a tax-deductible you know, donation. And if you want to do a little bit of uh, good PR about it, you know, go for it. Why not? Um, and this way, the debt is, is practically canceled. And at the same time, the money that would have been paid um, in repayment of debt to Bank of America in U.S. dollars is now spent in local currency for educational purposes domestically. Um, so you can, you can imagine using this debt swap mechanism, debt cancellation mechanism, in, in other areas to mitigate climate change, the effects of climate change. Um, and instead of doing this with Bank of America, you can do this with BP. You can do this with ExxonMobil. You can do this with, with England as a country, right? or industrial factories or petrochemical factories that have contributed to global climate change um, and force them into a climate debt cancellation process. Um, but I, I don't, the, me the mechanism is there. The tools are there. It's, it's getting people to acknowledge the problem. Um, and I think the fear from a lot of these organizations acknowledging the problem, the problem means they, they fear you know, legal retaliation. Um, so what we what we need to do at the global level is to change the conversation because we're, we're all in we're all in the same on the same planet, and we're all face, facing the same consequences. Some some regions obviously more severe than others, but at the end of the day, we're on the same planet. We're facing the same fate uh, as uh, as a humanity. So sitting down around a you know a big you know global table, so to speak. Um, in the same way that some countries um, sit down in a sort of truth and reconciliation uh, series of, uh, of, of, of sessions in, in post-conflict societies right. where, you know, there's been a genocide, there's been a lot of pain and destruction and, 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 and it's not kind of, it's not about, you know, who do we put in jail or who do we execute to, you know, revenge, you know, the, the, the pain that was suffered by another group, but it's, we're all in this together and we're going to move forward as a, as a society together. So let's sit down and acknowledge the pain, apologize for the pain and do what we can collectively to fix it. Um, that's sort of my vision for, you know, it's, it's, it's unlikely to happen right now, but if, if I had, you know, if, if I was sitting at the UN and had some sort of authority, this is the kind of movement that I would like to push for for um, a truth and reconciliation meeting about climate change. And, and it's not about forcing England to pay for the rest of it. Or, it's about, you know, all other, you know, contributors collectively recognizing that it's not me against them or us against them. We're all in this together. And, and yes, the, the, the people who perpetuated, you know, the, the, most of the damage have to acknowledge it and have to be willing to uh, contribute to the reparation. Um, and this, when I say reparation, a lot of people, especially in the U.S., think of financial reparation. I, I'm using the term almost uh, in the um, in the francophone uh, sense of the term. 
as in repairing the damage. Right when a chair is broken, you repair it. It does involve a monetary cost to repair, you know, a, a broken chair, um, but it's it's more than the financial cost. It's making something work again, right? right? Fixing it. Can I can uh, I ask a specific kind of, question about yeah, that? Go ahead. Um, so when you're talking about repairing the damage, uh, I imagine you're talking about helping these uh, poorer economies become much wealthier economies, and considering. Uh, all of us rich countries tend to sell the the high tech goods we produce to each other. Wouldn't opening up these these debt ridden markets, uh, debt afflicted markets to our products be a good thing for us as well as them? Aren't we hurting ourselves economically by not doing this? Absolutely. I mean, yes. the, the potential <laughs> market in, in developing countries is is huge. Um, but for me, it's, it's really not about wealth per se. It's not really about economic growth for the sake of economic growth. It's really about improving quality of life. Because when, when we talk about local sustainable food, not only we're fighting climate change, but actually the, the nutritious quality is, is superior. The, the footprint is much lower because you're growing things locally um, and you're employing people locally. Uh, you're not disrupting local communities. You're repairing local communities, in, in a sense, by producing food and energy domestically. And if we if we plug those two holes, right, the, the food imports and the energy imports, then we're repairing those economies from a from a substantial you know uh, vintage point, and we're allowing those economies to thrive in different ways. So people will have yes, they will have more wealth to consume either more locally or imported consumer goods from from abroad. And, and that will have to, you know, vary from from one country to the other because, you know, we we don't want to necessarily promote consumerism for the sake of consumerism. Uh, we as a global community have to be careful about the the mass consumption culture that that we already have. And if we if we fo- if we follow the American model of uh, consumer driven economic growth, which is in the U.S. seventy percent of GDP is consumer spending, um, the, it's it's unsustainable at the global level. It will have to be a different kind of consumption, um, especially as we move into this new era um, of very intensive mechanization. Because mechanization is not new. It started with the Industrial Revolution. But now we're moving into really advanced level of robotics that in the next 50 to 100 years will we'll make a lot of the industrial production that, that we know today obsolete. Uh, the question is, what do we do with with the labor that's going to be displaced by this increased and an intensifying level of mechanization. And the answer is we have to, you know, use people where they're much more effective than, than robots or machines, which is the care economy, caring for each other, caring for communities, caring for the climate, caring for the planet. And that's extremely important work that only human beings can do with the quality of, with the quality of care, I keep using the, the term care, with the quality of care that, uh, that we actually need. Um, so it, it requires a, you know, a substantial restructuring of our vision for what is, what is society is about, what is the economy all about. Uh, instead of um, sort of fighting technological advances, saying let's, let's ban the robots or let's tax, some people are saying let's tax the robots, um, I'd say let's, let's embrace the robots and have them do all the, dirty work that no human being should ever, you know, be employed to do. 
and and then have the rest of us do dignified work and meaningful work and uh, and and caring work that improves our quality of life and re envisions what it means to be human really uh, right right so when you at the conference, you said a sentence that, that I wrote down in literally all capital letters on my notepad. You said central bankers really need help with real resources. And when you talked about that, you were talking about renewable energy and sustainable agriculture. So I wanted you to, to talk to listeners about why these are the two critical confluences and why, and if you would tell us how you propose to use um, fish to fight inflation and political instability. Right. So I think that was actually the, the title of, of the paper. And uh, those of you who followed some of the news in Tunisia, which I suspect is just myself today, <laughs> um, the, the governor of the Central Bank of Tunisia came out, and uh, Tunisia has been in a substantial crisis in the last uh, few years, um, directly related to the trade deficit. Uh, and as, as a result, the trade deficit, you know, increases the external debt of the country. And now it's reaching the high, higher and higher levels. And the, uh, the chair of the central bank or the governor of the central bank uh, a couple of days ago came out and said, um, the central bank is no longer going to be able to defend the value of the currency, meaning we're out of foreign currency reserves and we're out of uh, possibilities to keep borrowing which means the exchange rate is going to fall in the next you know, few days, few weeks, and, it's, and it has already fallen substantially in the last seven years, which means you know, brace yourself for inflation. Um, and when you look at the inflation in most developing countries, it's imported inflation. So now when the Tunisian dinar is going to be devalued relative to the euro or the dollar, any Tunisian importer who's buying wheat or sugar or corn or medicine or, or fossil fuels to run, you know, electricity or, or anything you can imagine is going to be importing it by using a cheaper currency, a cheaper dinar relative to the euro. And as a result, it's going to come into the country at a much higher cost. And you're automatically importing inflation. So now food is going to be more expensive. Transportation is going to be more expensive. Medicine is going to be more expensive. And that's a recipe for, for social unrest, for, for a political disaster. Um, so... The problem is that central bankers are they're they're trained as you know traditional economists and they're thinking of the traditional solutions that I described earlier, which is how do we accelerate exports, how do we accelerate tourism, uh, how do we attract more foreign direct investment, how do we manipulate the exchange rate, and they're not trained to look at the root causes of the symptoms that they're seeing on the on their spreadsheets at the central bank. And what I described earlier is really digging behind the spreadsheet and trying to figure out the root causes that are causing those numbers to go out of whack, the, the trade deficit and the external debt. And the deficiencies are in agriculture. So the, the governor of the central bank need, needs help from the minister of, of agriculture. He needs help from the minister of um, renewable energy. Uh, he needs help from the minister of trade. And that's where the discussions need to take place. Instead, the governor of the central bank is asking for help from the IMF, and the IMF will not fix the agricultural problem. So my uh, interest in agriculture and sustainability and aquaponics uh, in particular was, was really 
you know, a few years ago was just as the casual, you know, person who cares about the environment and clean water and, you know, clean food and all that. Uh, it wasn't really tied into my research or, or economics per se. Um, I, I was not particularly in any kind of, uh, you know, um, gardener or, you know, it wasn't even part of my, my hobbies other, other than, you know, the casual stuff sometimes we do in the spring. Um, but now I, I discovered that if we're going to address these root causes, the, the, the choices will have to be made way outside the central bank. And it has to be um, restructuring agricultural production, especially in developing countries that suffer from uh, climate change and, and drought. And Tunisia is one of those uh, countries that, uh, that's been suffering from massive droughts over the last uh, few years. The entire region in the Middle East, as a matter of fact. Um, so it turns out that if you look at the agricultural policy of the country, it's actually driven by the same neoliberal uh, principles. You find the Ministry of Agriculture trying to do everything it can to support farmers who will export their output in order to generate dollars and euros to pay for the trade deficit and to pay for the external debt. So you find strategies to encourage exports of strawberries and strawberries. Strawberries, if I discovered this, you know, as, as I researched this, strawberries are massive consumers of water. So you end up using your most fertile land and most precious water resources to incentivize farmers to export strawberries to Europe to generate euros and, and dollar reserves for the central bank. And then you end up importing wheat and sugar and all the other basic agricultural commodities that you need for domestic consumption. So... It turns out that if you use aquaponics uh, technology, and aquaponics, I should say, this is not uh, uh, sort of an agricultural technology that was invented by hippies in the in the seventies. This this dates back to thousands of years. Uh, this these are native uh, technologies, mostly native to um, to uh, South America and Central America, uh, for hundreds and thousands of years, growing fish um, and Leafy greens in the same ecosystem is the most efficient way um, from, a, from a water resource management perspective. And it's the healthiest way because you can't use any chemicals or pesticide or anything because it kills, it kills the fish, right? It kills, so it's 100% organic. And essentially, you can grow this without using any soil, right? You can use clay pebbles because they can help absorb the moisture and keep the moisture. Moisture. And essentially, you can grow this in a vertical system. And uh, there's a lot of vertical farming that's happening now in Singapore, in the U.S., in Australia, and other places at an industrial scale, not just in a, as a kind of hobby and backyard hobby uh, like what I have in, in my house. So you essentially have uh, a fish tank uh, with you can grow tilapia fish in it. You can grow all kinds of um, edible fish in it. And then you have a water pump pumping the water from the fish tank to a higher uh, grow bed that has clay pebbles to hold the roots of the leafy greens like lettuce and mint and basil. And, and you can grow even tomatoes and all kinds of things, including strawberries, by the way. There's strawberries <laughs> and aquaponics. Yeah. Um, and this, this technique allows you to save 95% of water use compared to traditional agriculture. So then the water is pumped from the fish tank to the higher level where you're growing the leafy greens. And then you use gravity to allow the water to circle back into the fish tank. And what you have is that the fish is producing the nutrients from the fish waste. Those nutrients are broken down with, you know, bacteria that will develop in the water. And those 
nutrients are absorbed by the leafy greens, by the plants that you're growing, and then the plants are returning the fresh, clean water back to the fish tank. Um, it's very low energy um, in terms of you know a basic water pump, maybe a basic uh, filter uh, pump, um, and a small solar panel will, will take care of this. And you can scale it up to an industrial you know, production unit. It can be uh, a backyard kind of supplementary nutrition uh, source of food for local families, especially in rural areas. Or it can be done on a larger scale as a community garden. Uh, or it can be done industrially for, for market production. So my strategy for countries that suffer from uh, serious droughts and have this uh, terrible misallocation of resources uh, like growing things like strawberries that consume a lot of water just for the sake of exporting them. The idea is to reallocate the most fertile land and the most precious water resources to producing the domestic crops that domestic market needs and then moving all the other leafy greens and, and strawberry things, things that are that can be grown in, in this vertical. You can't grow wheat in aquaponics uh, efficiently. Right. Uh, so you move all of those things into soil-less, so you're not using any soil, and you don't need any fertile land for this. You can grow them in old warehouses. You can grow them in, on rooftops. You can grow them anywhere, even indoors. But why use indoors when can you can lose sunlight outside, um, especially in the Middle East where the climate doesn't get really cold to require you know greenhouses like we we do here in ohio and indiana um and that's that allows you a massive amount of savings of water resources and you're producing 100 percent organic leafy greens and and fish for domestic consumption especially in rural areas where in in places like tunisia you have the highest level of inequality poverty malnutrition and socioeconomic dislocation um, because there are no jobs and there are no economic uh, activities in, in those towns. So, so people end up leaving, looking for jobs in the coastal areas where tourism is, where industrial development is. And unfortunately, these days, because of the, the miserable economic conditions in, in the country, um, you, you often see this in the news, you know, such and such number of of migrants were, you know, caught drowning in the Mediterranean trying to cross to Europe. Yeah, and a lot of those young people are coming from those rural areas, and it, it's it's heartbreaking when um, a, a few a couple of months ago a few of the survivors were interviewed, and I I watched this, and and they were talented young people, full of energy. Um, some of them were artists. Uh, a couple of them were, you know, theater actors, talented theater actors who said that there was no hope, there was no outlet. Uh, and, and, and this is not a journey that anybody wants to, you know, engage in as a, as a sort of a adventure. A, this is a question of life and death. Uh, and quite a few people die in that journey. So what I, my, my dream is to, you know, have somebody hear this and say, let's try it. Let's try a pilot project in, in a small town and let's try to reintroduce uh, a different kind of economic system, local economic system that's sustainable, that creates jobs, but also gives people hope that we can build a different kind of economy. So let's say we we introduce the, the aquaponics technology to a handful of people who are trained, who know how to use this and, and produce this uh, effectively. And then let's take um, 
a small group of people and retrain people. And I say retrain because these are native technologies too that were not invested, invented in the 70s uh, by hippies. This is you know native technology that's been around for thousands of years, which is building uh, houses um, using local uh, materials, using, clay, uh, using um, local clay, adobe houses. And the key here is using geothermal ventilation. Um, those of you who are familiar with, with Star Wars, the original Star Wars, uh, planet, what's the name of the famous planet? Those of you who are familiar, planet Tatooine. Uh, planet Tatooine, the, the actual film was filmed in Tunisia, in, in the Tunisian uh, desert. That's right. And, uh, yes, and uh, Tatooine is the name of the town. And the architecture that you see that looks like from a different planet, it's native architecture that's been around for hundreds of years. Um, it's just it's been replaced by cement and bricks and imported materials from from Europe. But it's the most effective way of uh, building housing units to minimize the need for heating and cooling during the winter times and during the summer times. Um, and today, adding a couple of solar panels um, and uh, imagine retraining people to build bed and breakfast units and small restaurants like that. Right, so you're attracting a different kind of tourism now. You have local food at the at the local restaurant, built sustainably with local resources, with local people, and then use local. You know, you can build even a small community center um, to revive um, cultural heritage from those particular towns and invent a different kind of tourism, ecotourism. So now tourists are not coming to this village because they want the beach and the nightclub, but they're coming to discover a new culture, to discover a new history, to eat local sustainable food built, you know, produced in, 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 uh, in housing units and hotels built by local materials. Tourists will be willing to pay a premium to experience that as opposed to go to the usual stuff on the beach. And building a pilot experiment like this can start to give people hope that we can use local resources, labor resources, resources, know-how, traditional architecture, and traditional agricultural techniques to produce a much, much higher quality of life than what a mining company can bring to the city or a manufacturing company can bring to the town. And that's really kind of beginning to help people imagine a different world, a sustainable world, um, and, a, and a world that's thriving in a different way. But right now, most people, when, when you ask people in rural areas, say, how can we, you know, provide a better quality of life for you, they say, bring us a factory or bring us a mining company, create jobs. And, and, and this is not to blame the local people, but this is kind of the level of restriction of human imagination that's been imposed on people. And we're told that there is no alternative. You know, the famous phrase from Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative. This yeah. is really deeply engraved into people's minds um, everywhere in the U.S. and, and beyond. That we what what we have is a what I call a deficit of imagination, a deficit of ideas, and, and that's MMT, actually the dangerous deficit. Exactly, <laughs> and what what MMT allows us to do, and what MMT has allowed me to do, is to escape the traditional, you know, standard way of economic development by allowing us a different lens to identify the root causes of some of these problems. And once, I mean, the easy part is. 
once you know what the problem is, the easy part is, you know, finding the solution. So problem solving is much easier than problem identification. Problem identification yeah. is when you're looking at a big mess and you have no idea what's going on. Uh, and if you've been trained and trained and trained into thinking of one way of solving this particular problem, and and especially when you try and try and try that same solution over and over again, and you find yourself deeper and deeper into a, a bigger hole, at some point you have to stop and say, well, maybe the problem solving technique that I've been using is actually the wrong one. Um, I mean, Warren has this uh, funny way of, of saying these things sometimes. He says, it's like you're a carpenter and you're and you're cutting this piece of wood, and then you put it in place, and, and it doesn't fit. And then you cut it again, and it doesn't fit. And it, you cut it again, and you say it's too short. So you cut it again, <laughs> yeah. and it's still short. And you cut it again, and it's still short. At some point, you have to realize you're using the wrong technique. You need a longer piece, not a shorter piece. Uh, and that's kind of where where we are, unfortunately, with these questions of, of economic development. Well, I think you're about to get some help, because it does. it is my sort of understanding that the hotel and resort industry are about to get a real shock. I don't think millennials are all that interested in staying in hotel towers with, you know, identical rooms and eating chain produced food in just another location. I think they're looking for travel experiences. And I think the kind of thing you're talking about is exactly what they're going to be looking for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this can happen on the, in the coastal cities, too. It doesn't have to be just in rural areas. Right. Well, it's happening uh, it's in Latin America right now. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they're already, um, they're already developing ecotourism in a, actually a pretty dramatic way and, and um, a pretty successful way. It's very encouraging to me. Right. Um, so I want to wrap around for just a second and, um, and talk a little bit about uh, well, I guess the best way to lead into this part of the conversation is, um, is a job guarantee program only viable in developed economies? Right. So the, the, the question about the, the job guarantee, and this is really what, what got me into this, because when I learned this stuff, when I was a grad student in Kansas City, it was so eye-opening and, and refreshing, but at the same time, it was so frustrating because I recognized from the beginning that, wait a minute, developing countries can't do this because they have so much external debt and lack of financial sovereignty. So does that mean that this is only for rich countries, for countries like the U.S. and Japan and, and Canada? And over the years, I, you know, I dedicated most of my thinking, most of my work into figuring out a way of doing this in developing countries. So, for example, the example that I just uh, highlighted, the case of Tunisia, the in order to be able to introduce a job guarantee in the same way most of the literature says you can in the U.S. or Canada or Japan, you have to regain financial sovereignty. So that process of regaining financial sovereignty requires, you know, getting rid of the external debt component uh, and getting rid of those structural deficiencies. And the best way to address that is by using a, a job guarantee program, but then targeting the job creation in particular areas that help you restore financial sovereignty. Um, so this ecotourism idea that I just proposed, this would be a job guarantee program that channels resources. Um, uh, investing in renewable energy is also a job guarantee solution. So channeling job creation resources. The question is, how do we pay for it? If, if those countries already have um, limited resources already in terms of having 
to pay the external debt and, and so on. Um, wh again, when you start digging at the numbers and looking at um, how much developing countries are already paying in subsidies for imported food and subsidies for imported energy, one of the things we can do at least gradually is gradually shift the subsidies away from subsidizing imported food to producing local food, away from subsidizing imported fossil fuels to investing in domestic renewable energy. Um, and we don't have to change the whole system in one year. At least begin the process of having this long-term vision of gradually shifting resources away from subsidizing fossil fuels to subsidizing the, the resources that you need to produce domestically for, for the future of the country. Um, in addition to that, if we're, if we're successful in terms of debt cancellation efforts, whether it's related to obvious debt for, developing, for countries that transition to democracy, um, I, I can talk about this, uh, this process if you're interested, um, because countries that have uh, lived under dictatorship, there's a legal mechanism to cancel part of their external debt that was related to uh, the oppressive regime that uh, that ruled those countries. Um, Tunisia, there was a movement at some point to try to uh, do this, but it was um, overruled politically by uh, a whole bunch of uh, political voices that thought, well, this will upset our European friends uh, if we embarrass them too much by saying that they support, supported dictators in the past when we need our European friends today to help us with, you know, foreign direct investment and export and, and all and tourism and all that stuff. Um, so uh, there, there are mechanisms to help restructure or cancel the debt and gradually move into that space of food sovereignty and energy sovereignty and full financial sovereignty. Um, so, so it is possible to introduce a, a job guarantee. There's, there's ways of thinking of using complementary currencies, local currencies, uh, to help speed up that process uh, as well. Um, and one of the things that I'll be writing in the next few months is, is really a little bit of the specifics of what I, what I described today. In a place like Saudi, I'm amazed there's not already a JG program in place or at least a trial JG program. And do you think this is a solution that might make sense to, um, to MBS? He seems to have his gaze pretty firmly fixed on the financial future of the kingdom and more broad-based development. He seems to be looking farther down the road. Uh, yes. Um, so... You know, when you when you think of Saudi Arabia with its potential for um, you know renewable energy production, it's 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 unbelievable that 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 particular country hasn't invested um, already in that. So it's it's finally waking up to that reality because there's quite a few recent studies, serious studies, essentially forecasting that Saudi Arabia will become a net oil importer, importer right. by 2038 which is 2038, if you're looking at your calendar, is the day after tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in terms of, right, so, so the clock is ticking, and if, and if a country like Saudi Arabia turns into a net energy importer, let me remind you that Saudi Arabia is also a net food importer, and it's also one of those countries that has that uh, deficiency, structural deficiency of exporting low-value-added content and importing high-value-added content. So in a matter of uh, a few decades, Saudi Arabia will be stuck in the same structural trade deficit 
situation that a country like Tunisia is in today or Egypt or you know Namibia or South Africa or any other other country and and that's that's a huge problem so the only way to you know prevent that from happening is at least have energy self-sufficiency and food self-sufficiency and food self-sufficiency in Saudi Arabia is, is going to be much much more difficult than say Tunisia or Algeria or Morocco just because of how you know uh, difficult the climate is and how scarce water resources are in that part of the world. Um, so, yes, uh, the, the crown prince um, uh, is, is, is trying to, you know, reshape the economy, but, um, and, and speaking of a job guarantee, a, a few years ago when we started the Benzaga Institute, one of the first policy reports that we published was specifically a job guarantee proposal for Saudi Arabia recognizing all of these uh, these issues. And Saudi Arabia has other challenges, too, in terms of its labor force. Uh, about 90% of the labor force um, are, are expat workers, uh, foreign workers, um, which which is, you know, substantially higher than, than any other economy. And this is not to say that, you know, we should send all the foreign workers back home and, and have the Saudis do, do the work. And, and some people, you know, believe in that. Um, I'm I'm not I'm not in favor of that. I'm, I've been an immigrant all my life in every in every well, country. Then. And it's the wrong way around. It doesn't take Saudi right. in the direction it right. needs to go. So so MBS and, and the Saudi Kingdom has been following the policy advice of the IMF, and to be more specific, the fo- the policy advice of, of McKinsey, the consulting company. They they have a big footprint in, yeah. in Saudi Arabia in terms of policy space, and you know. McKinsey, I mean, does interesting work, but at the end of the day, it's just prepackaged policy ideas from the standard um, neoliberal economic approach. So uh, their policy solution is to, to, to address unemployment, and unemployment is, uh, youth unemployment, especially in Saudi Arabia, is, is, is on the rise, especially for young women, uh, highly educated, college-educated women. Uh, the unemployment rate is, is around 30 35%, at least the official unemployment rate. So, so it's becoming a serious economic problem, and it's a serious uh, social problem, political problem, potentially for for the country. So, the strategy to address this youth unemployment, according to McKinsey, according to this plan, is to um, build brand new cities. Um, there's these pristine, beautiful islands on uh, in the Red Sea uh, in Saudi Arabia that that have been home to, you know, all kinds of. Uh, um, migrant birds and beautiful species of fish and all kinds of things. Uh, now they're going to be turned into a massive tourism uh, hub uh, to to attract tourism. So the idea is that it's going to create construction jobs. It's going to tr- create hotel and entertainment and transportation jobs. And the hope, the hope with this specific plan is to bring down the official unemployment rate by 2030 from the current level of 11 some percent to five percent, like hundreds of billions of dollars worth of spending in environmental destruction, for the hope of reducing unemployment to five percent, when you can do a job guarantee program that brings unemployment down to zero and addresses structural deficiencies in the economy and employs everyone, right? Especially youth, uh, Saudi youth, and you can put ha- them to work in the public purpose. Exactly. Exactly. So. Those who are interested, we can you can take a look at the the policy report on our on our website. 
Um, and, and this, the policy report, by the way, was published before this uh, Vision 2030 plan was was released. Um, um, so it it doesn't really respond directly to Vision 2030, um, but it but it does lay a, a working plan for um, introducing a true full employment program. Um, what we did in that study is we estimated the cost of unemployment, just the economic cost of unemployment. And then we compared that to the cost of providing a generous employment program for young people, full employment program. And it turns out that the, the cost of the job guarantee program is one-fifth of the current cost of the wasted economic output that's, that, the, that the country is not benefiting from because of unemployment. Yeah. So this is not to, to, to count the social cost of unemployment, right? Which, you know, and this is true for any country. Which, if uh, I were a member of the Saudi family, House of Saud, I would be pretty concerned. Right. I mean, any any country should be concerned about the rise in, uh, you know, uh, crime, suicide, um, you know, malnutrition, all of these, uh, you know, family breakdown, divorce, domestic violence, child abuse, any country. And, and there's been tons of studies about this. Every time the unemployment rate reaches higher and higher levels, you see a spike and all the social effects that are directly related to unemployment, including, by the way, in, in this country, the opioid addiction. It's, it's not all, you know, injuries and medical issues. Some of it is that. But, you know, you're in Indiana. I'm in Ohio. And this is kind of the the, the capital of the universe when it comes to the opioid uh, addiction in, in yeah. this country. And a lot of it is related to deindustrialization and and the, the disappearing jobs, the good paying jobs. And, and hope and uh, lack of hope and, and, and despair um, is, is a big chunk of, of this, this process. And, and some of this sort of came up in the last election cycle. I mean, yeah. the fact that Trump and, and, and Bernie Sanders, you know, one from the right and one from the left, uh, recognized the pain that the deindustrialized Midwest suffers from and, and, and told people that, not only we recognize your pain, but we know that the mainstream political voices, both Democrats and Republicans, have been ignoring you and have been working against you. And we, we as in Bernie Sanders and his voice and, and Donald Trump and his voice, we're going to do something about it. And, and of course, you know, those who were inclined to the right went with Donald Trump. Those who were inclined to the left went with Bernie Sanders. Um, that is not to say that what Trump is doing today is actually going to fix the problem. Uh, but at least there was that, you know, little bit of hope that somebody's going to do something different about this particular issue. Um, and and I think, pres- you know, President Obama was elected with a campaign slogan, you know, yes, we can. He was basically elected on hope. And, yeah, and as soon as he got into office, he said, no, we can't. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's, there's that. Um, but I, I just, I feel like, there's the understanding that that there is hope is essential it is for everybody it is essential to survival and would you talk a little bit about the concept of tiara there is a real alternative and the developing world right so um so the one of the things that i really think most of my past interest in in this field is sort of trying to challenge the, the 1980s vision that was brought by uh, Margaret Thatcher and, and Reagan in, in this country. 
And and the famous phrase that um, that Margaret Thatcher said that, that there is no alternative to the market that we need to uh, privatize. We need it's the whole neoliberal uh, model that Tina. you know it started as you know uh, as as this political rhetoric in the 1980s, but it's by now it's deeply ingrained into uh, every corner of our minds as uh, as as a society. Uh, and especially in the economics profession, because it's not just a, a rhetoric, it's a whole series of, you know, a whole group of think tanks and academic departments and academic journals and publications that kind of enforce this neoclassical, neoliberal uh, mode of thinking um, and, and brainwash generations into this mode of thinking. Um, and what the post-Keynesian and institutionalist and the, the MMT um, a small tribe of economists have been trying to do in, in the in, in the past, and including other heterodox traditions, you know, feminist economists and Marxian economists, and I'm, I'm, I'm I mostly talk about post Keynesianism and institutionalists. This is the group that I um, find myself closest to in terms of uh, intellectual ideas um, and, and the MMT community. What we've been trying to do is to showcase that yes, there is a real alternative. And there's a whole bunch of these real alternatives. As a matter of fact, that when we had the opportunity to create the, the Benzaga Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, this was sort of the, the, the central focus. Um, because as, as a group of, of scholars, we wanted to um, showcase a whole series of policy ideas. So we wanted a, a think tank that's more solutions-oriented and to showcase that there is a different way of doing uh, economic development, a different way of doing, you know, dealing with social security, a different way of dealing with um, education and agriculture and international trade and and all kinds of public policy um, uh, issues that we deal with. And, and can I just hop in here real quickly and ask you to tell us a little bit about your founder and about why you're in the U.S., why um, the Institute is here? Sure. Right. So... Uh, so uh, Matt Forstatter, who's the research director in, in the institute, who was my teacher, my mentor, my my friend when I was in, in Kansas City as a grad student, um, he received a, a phone call, or I believe, or an email from Mr. Saeed Bin Zegar. Uh, Saeed Bin Zegar is the the one of the leading um, figures in the Bin Zegar, uh, family uh, business which is one of the oldest family businesses in the Middle East. It, it dates back to at least the 1880s, um, uh, if not before. So in, in the 1880s, uh, the Benzegar group became the official representative of Unilever uh, in, in the Middle East. And since then, they've been you know, producing and manufacturing and, uh, and distributing all the Unilever products in, in Saudi Arabia and, and beyond. Um, so it's a it's it's actually older than the kingdom of Saudi Arabia as a, as a family business. So we, we received this uh, phone call and uh, turned out that uh, Said was uh, following all the post Keynesian MMT literature for a number of uh, months, if not a number of years, and has read extensively on this. And he, as an individual, he was interested in trying to understand inequality, trying to understand you know social inequity. Uh, I mean, one of the things that the Benzagar family as a business is known for in Saudi Arabia is how well they treat their, their workers, how well they care for their workers, for their retirement plans and the environment and women in the workplace. Um, so it was, it was a genuine interest in these questions. And these questions became much more 
difficult to to comprehend in the aftermath of the financial crisis because the mainstream of the media and the profession didn't really have uh, alternative answers. So he was drawn to the MMT literature and the Minskian literature after after 2008, the New Economic Perspectives, uh, the blog at um, in Kansas City. Right. So he called Matt and he said, there's this big conference that we're organizing in Saudi Arabia. Um, how about you bring a group of your people and, and do a panel explaining MMT and the job guarantee in the context of the Middle East and Saudi Arabia? Um, so we, Matt and I went and we had this you know wonderful panel that we co-presented on, explained MMT, explained the job guarantee, worked out kind of a, a preliminary proposal for a job guarantee in, in Saudi Arabia. And it was mostly a business audience. This was organized by a Chamber of Commerce uh, conference. And it was refreshing because the, the audience thought these are interesting ideas, new ideas uh, that, you know, unusual to hear in, in that context. And we thought, okay, this was a great conference. We're, we're going home and we'll, we'll be in touch. But the, the question to us was, what do, we know, what do we do next? How do we spread these ideas and kind of challenge the mainstream media and the mainstream of the profession and the business world and governments into thinking differently? So the idea of creating this public policy think tank uh, came about, and both Matt and I are based in the U.S., um, and we we wanted the institute to be an international institute, not an American institute, so we're based here, but our coverage, we're hoping to be as international as, as possible. Um, our funding uh, comes from, from Saudi Arabia, but we're, we're an international think tank, so we're not exclusively focused on Saudi Arabia or the Middle East. Uh, as a matter of fact, our operation is completely independent. Uh, in terms of what we publish and what we um, what we produce in terms of research, um, uh, we also wanted not to be uh, strictly an economic policy institute. We wanted to be more interdisciplinary because when you think about it, most of the serious problems that we face in the world are multidimensional. So yes. the issue of climate change it has an economic you know aspect to it. It has a political aspect, ethical aspect, scientific aspect, uh, social architectural. Aspect of- architectural design everything so in terms of addressing these problems we can't just address them from an economic perspective so we want it to be interdisciplinary from the beginning international and we wanted to um, broaden the focus of sustainability uh, in, a, in a holistic way so that it's not just sustainable development in the in the traditional sense of the term it's about improving quality of life overall uh, yes, you know, clean air and clean water and clean soil is part of it, but there's a whole other aspect of um, of quality of life that needs to be uh, uh, embraced. So the the slogan that we use on our website is "People, Planet, Prosperity," uh, sort of like the triple bottom line of "People, Planet, Profits." Right. So instead right. of focusing on just the financial bottom line, which is important, right? We still need to be financially sustainable as organizations. But, you know, using a triple bottom line approach so that every decision we make as governments, as individuals, as companies, as NGOs, we have to make sure we're careful about the impact on the planet, the impact on people and communities, and also the financial cost and the financial impact. And that's really sort of the the vision that we wanted to have for, for the Institute. And this is we're moving into our fourth year right now. Um, so, uh, for me, uh, strategically, the way I see this, um, we've been able to recruit a fantastic group of research scholars and research fellows from all over the world. You uh, really have. I was looking at the website 
uh, yesterday. It's a pretty amazing group. It, it is an amazing group, and I'm excited to say that there's a whole bunch of new people that just joined in the last uh, couple of months that we didn't get a chance to update our website yet. The, the website is uh, is being revamped completely as we speak. So there'll be quite a few uh, new people, and, and we'll continue to do this because it's really about building a network, building a community of, of scholars or and and uh, and practitioners because we're not just scholars we have quite a few people who are not in acad- academia and want to build more connections with with NGOs and organizations and and media organizations too because if we're trying to introduce that idea of tier right that there is a real alternative uh we're not going to win this debate in academic journals and that's how that's that's not how the neoliberal movement in the 70s and 80s won the debate they didn't win it in in the in academic journals they want it sort of uh, on the streets and in, in the public domain uh, through the media uh, and through political narratives. Um, so we have to be able not only to produce the academic research and the practical ideas to show that there are real solutions, but we have to work extremely hard to communicate those ideas in an accessible way, uh, build a narrative that, that not only makes sense, but also gives hope and empowers people in, in, in local communities across the world um, and, and it empowers people to take action, to challenge the, the idea that there is no alternative and to build a movement that's empowered by economic ideas and narratives um, and strategies to transform the system that we, that we operate in, in a, in a more sustainable and more um, and, and into a thriving uh, world. I mean, the, the possibilities are there. Um, and, and that's really the, the hope is that we'll, we'll be able to do this. It's when people ask me about this, I, I usually say we're we're 30 and 40 years uh, late and we're maybe 200, 300 million dollars uh, too short. <laughs> uh, because when you think of the, the movement, the neoliberal movement of the 70s and 80s, it was a massive uh, media and think tank and academic funding um, campaign. Uh, that led to where we are today, to the point where people see no other alternative. It's just overwhelmed the system at every level. Yep, I remember it. I was there. (laughs) Right, and we're trying to break into that space um, because I I truly believe that people are looking for that kind of alternative. I mean, the the last election proved it in the U.S. Brexit movement proved it in the U.S., that people are looking for a different answer. And unfortunately, sometimes the answers are you know, very kind of shallow populism type of uh, let's go with, you know, anything different just to try it out. Yeah, the um, Italian but, election last week. Right, and the Italian elections, and it's it's happening everywhere. Um, and if the need for it and the, the hope for this is there, um, which means, you know, to, I'm an economist, which means there is a market for it, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, in a market for for these ideas, for these uh, for for these um, you know different ways of of doing things, uh, we just need to keep you know working at it, working harder to to spread these ideas, and um, and uh, and we're building this for the next generation. So I have I'm not under the illusion that you know I'm going to change the world in in my lifetime, but at least building a structure uh, that's that's self sustaining. Um, that can encourage other academics and activists and, and organizers to to build on uh, on this foundation. But I do think actually maybe you're undershooting a little because first of all I see a 
um, an absolute buildup in the momentum behind heterodox economics in general and MMT in particular. Um, but I also think that social media is on your side. In other right. words, it is. it makes it much, much easier to spread these ideas than the past 30 or 40 years. They had to work hard to get the word out. We have to work hard to break through. But right. getting the word out is vastly easier than it used to be. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the whole MMT movement that we have today uh, would be impossible without social media. Um, because it was just a bunch of academics writing papers for each other and, you know, 12 people would read them and we meet at conferences and talk about them. And, you know, after a while you realize, well, why, why are we talking to each other? I mean, we already agree on this and trying to go beyond this. Of course, educating our students in the classroom was, was helpful because that, that also helps, you know, educate, uh, you know, going to public uh, events and speaking at kind of uh, public forums. But it, it was going at a very slow speed until, you know, the, the blog universe started to uh, happen and the social media tools started to appear. And, and, and here we are, you know, 2018, yesterday or the day before, Rush Limbaugh was talking about MMT. I know. I was blown so, away. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, I mean, it wasn't the kind of MMT discussion that you and I hope for, yeah. but, but it is there. It is breaking into the mainstream as as one of those, you know, as as, as Gandhi uh, said, you know, first they ignore you, uh, then they ridicule you, uh, then they fight you. And I think this is we're in the fighting stage. We're in between yeah. the ridicule and, and more into the fighting stage. Then you win. Um, so, yes, there there is hope. Well, and I, I really think uh, my Ph.D. is in physics and. What I find is that the very hardest people to talk to about MMT are neoliberal economists, and the very easiest people to talk to about MMT are physicists, because physicists innately understand flow. And you explain it to them in terms of flow, and they're like, oh, well, of course, it has to be that way. It couldn't possibly be any other way. You know, it, right. it simply, it's part of the language of... of um, of how physics physicists see the world, I guess, basically. Absolutely. So, I've discovered this in, uh, over the last few years, that talking to physicists, computer scientists, you know, uh, scientists in general, uh, get it right away as a point of logic. Uh, accountants, in particular, get it yes, as a yeah. logic. Um, but, you know, economists have been brainwashed into this. I mean, it's literally a, a brainwashing process. And this is not to say that economists are not smart or or caring people or, you know, many of them are very progressive and care about social issues and care about justice. They've just been brainwashed into a, a particular way of thinking. And Keynes himself said it when he wrote his book in, in the 1930s. He said the most difficult um, challenge for the readers of, of his ideas is not understanding the new stuff. It's really trying to forget and unlearn the old, the old stuff, ideas. Yeah. And he said for him, for Keynes himself as the author of this, because Keynes himself was trained in neoclassical economics before he became, you know, Keynes, the Keynes we know. He said for him, writing the book was a, was a, a, a struggle, right? A struggle to escape the old ideas. And, and that's sort of, um, it's sort, of, sort of true for anybody who's been trained in a, in a particular way of, of thinking, 
it's it's much more challenging um, than than talking to somebody who's been outside the discipline and hasn't been brainwashed into that particular way of thinking. So, would you tell folks how you use the Denison Volunteer Dollar as part of teaching the the principles of MMT, but also because I think of it in terms of if I was trying to convince somebody who was open but not sure, I would ask them to do a version of this inside their own family, with their kids, with their family, and and to put this in place because it's going to become immediately apparent to them. Would you talk about the Denison Volunteer Dollar or the Buckaroo right. Dollar that UMKC uses? Right. So uh, for for the listeners who are interested, if you Google my name and Denison Volunteer Dollars, you'll get to a YouTube page that has there's a, a 10 minute YouTube video that a, a group of students of mine and I did a few years ago explaining this in, in detail. But essentially, here's here's what happens. In, in 2008, when I started teaching here at Denison, um, I uh, borrowed the ideas from Warren Mosler and Randy Ray and the, the Buckaroo program and created a local currency in the economics department here at Denison. And we called it the Denison Volunteer Dollars uh, Program. So they're actual dollars printed on counterfeit proof paper that I managed to buy online. And we designed them here in the office and we print them here in the office. So it's basically paper, paper currency. And then I walk into the classroom with the syllabus and give the students the syllabus. Here are the readings and the assignments and the exams and the deadlines and everything. And as part of your grade, there is 5% of the grade is a tax that the students have to pay at the end of the semester. And the tax is to pay 50 DVDs, you know, 50 Denison volunteer dollars. So the students are confused and they say, what is this DVD? Is this money? Is this? Say, yeah, it is money and you have to pay the tax. And if you don't pay the tax, you lose 5% of your grade. So the next question the students obviously ask is, how do we, how do we find these things? Where do we buy them? How can we earn them? And I tell them, well, the only way to earn these is to do useful, productive work in the community, the local community, with one of the local you know, NGOs and um, nonprofit organizations. And, and we have a database of these in, in the local community. Our students know them anyway because a lot of our students volunteer on a regular basis. So for every hour of useful, productive work you do in the community, you get paid $10, 10 DVDs. So essentially the requirement is to do a minimum of five hours of service in the community throughout the semester. So they say, fine. So then we talk about the logic of, of this for a second and tell them I'm playing the role of the federal government. Miss um, Miss Judy in the economics department, she's our uh, academic uh, assistant staff person. Uh, she plays the role of the U.S. treasurer. So when the students work and get their form signed to you know verify that they've they've done the work with the organization, they take their signed form and they go to the treasurer's office to get paid in, in Denison volunteer dollars. And then they come to the classroom at the end of the semester and they pay me in class. I play the role of the IRS. So you have the treasury and the IRS and the students are sort of the population, the labor force in the system. So I ask them on day one and tell them, is it possible for this you know, government structure to collect taxes today in the beginning of the semester. Can you pay your tax today? And they say, no, it's, it's impossible because there is no money in the system yet. They say, you're right, yeah, we didn't spend any money. So then the, the logic is that the students will go and do the service every week, every other day, whatever, 
and they go to the treasurer's office and they get paid on a weekly basis. They get their weekly paycheck. So the spending happens before the tax revenue is collected at the end of the semester. Whereas most people think, you know, we even say it's, you know, my tax dollars that pay for healthcare and social security and, and, you know, education and infrastructure and the war and the military and all that. When in reality, the sovereign issue of the, of the currency as a matter of logic has to spend money into existence first, then collect tax revenues at the end of the semester. So that becomes an interesting discussion in and of itself in terms of the sequence of how, you know, in other words, taxes don't fund government spending. So we have a whole discussion about that. The second point of logic that we talk about is at the end of the semester when the students are showing up to pay their taxes, and we keep track of all the numbers in terms of how much we spent and how much we tax. And we look at the numbers and we say, okay, the economics department spent, uh, let's say, $1,000 paying students to do this work this semester. And at the end of the semester, is it possible that the economics department uh, is going to be able to run a surplus? And it's just physically impossible. If we spent $1,000 into existence, how can we collect 1001 It just doesn't work. The best we can do is to have a balanced budget which means leaving no money left in the private sector. And then in practice, it turns out that most students actually do more hours of service than what the requirement for the tax is. So in practice, the department will spend $2,000 and would only collect $1,700 maybe. So then we talk about what happened to the other $300. That means that the economics department has a deficit, a budget deficit, and the student body, the private sector, has a surplus of $300. So it's the exact equivalent. What we call a deficit for the government is the net wealth, the net savings of the private sector. And we have a discussion about, you know, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? And then we fast forward, especially now where I have the data for several years, you can see deficit after deficit after deficit accumulating into the national debt of the economics department in DVDs. So the national debt is the exact equivalent of the number of dollars that were spent and were kept in circulation in the private sector, in the student body. So then I say, wait a minute. And some of those students will have graduated. So if they happen to still have any DVDs, those go with them. So that becomes your international sector. It's possible. Or retirement community, right? There you go. Yeah, so I, I, we, we built in a, 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 re, a social security system and a, and a savings account for, for retirees, so to speak. So the, the other interesting point of logic here is to recognize that the wealth of the private sector comes from the accumulated deficits or the national debt of, of the government. So then I tell them, imagine the scenario. Imagine we, we bring in a group of consultants from, you know, from another university or from the IMF, and they look at our national debt and they say it's too high. Uh, your government is going broke. You need to impose austerity. So then next semester, we force the treasurer of the program to spend less. So then students show up to do the useful, productive work in society, and the treasurer will say, sorry, I'm out of dollars. I can't pay you. So technically, you're unemployed, right? You're actively seeking work in this community, you know, um, development world. And you're told, uh, even though there is plenty of need in the community for useful, productive work, but we're told that we can't spend. So austerity is an artificial, you know, restriction on the sovereign government that forces the population into unemployment. 
for no good reason, right. right? Other than this artificial reason of trying to reduce the national debt, right? So we have all kinds of interesting discussions, and students are allowed to use the currency to for all kinds of economic activity in the private sector. So they can use it to pay each other for, you know, somebody needs a ride to the airport, they can pay for it in Denison volunteer dollars. My favorite example is uh, a student who paid uh, another classmate in DVDs to uh, copy their class notes because they wanted to have better notes to study for the final. So that's kind of the ideal for, for me. Um, there, there, there hasn't been any abuse of the system. Even students who trade the DVD currency for actual U.S. dollars um, most in most of the cases, because we talk about it anecdotally, mo- in most of the cases it was just you know for fun. It wasn't like students trying to avoid having to do the service or anything like that. And it turns out when we talk about that, we're essentially talking about the exchange rate between two currencies, between the Denison currency and the actual U.S. dollar, just like the exchange rate between dollars and euros or dollars and Canadian dollars. And it turns out the value of the exchange rate fluctuates throughout the semester, just like and and other currencies their value fluctuate uh throughout the day throughout the year in the beginning of the year when somebody asks will anybody you know pay me US dollars to to buy these DVDs most people say no I'm not willing to pay for it because I have the whole semester to do my 5 hours and I can I can do it myself but at the end of the semester the day of the deadline if somebody doesn't have <laughs> haven't you know were too busy with their you know athletics or whatever didn't have the time then they're willing to pay more for the currency. So you can see the exchange rate fluctuating depending on market conditions, depending on the situation. So the purpose of this is to get people to think differently about the the logic and the sequence of operation of of public finances uh, and to understand that the deficit for the government is the equivalent, the exact equivalent to the penny of the non-government sector surplus um, and, and it's a service learning program. So it's really also about getting students involved in the community, addressing, you know, root causes of, of poverty and homelessness and hunger. And, and, and of course, talking about these particular issues in class in addition to the monetary system. Um, so I, I use this in quite a few of, of my classes. Um, I, I teach mostly macro and monetary theory classes. Um, and um, right now, uh, it turns out that the basketball coach here at Denison has completely independently discovered MMT on his own, just through social media, I suppose. Really? Yes, and and he wants to introduce the DVD program um, as a as a component of being on the basketball team because basketball players they they get their you know uniform for free and they get you know all kinds of things. Uh, all kinds of perks as as being on the basketball team, but they're also part of being an athlete at, at Denison is is learning leadership skills and and doing community work. Uh, so they already do this kind of work, and but he wants to teach the basketball players a little bit more, other than doing community service and earning your spot on the basketball team. Uh, so we're monetizing quite a bit of this, and and I'll be uh, I guess uh, co co teaching this component trying to help our basketball athletes learn about uh, public policy and public finance and the public purpose. Um, and, and hopefully other coaches uh, on campus will, will copy this model soon. So, um, so I'm very excited about the, the potential of expanding this beyond uh, particular econ classes and, and hopefully getting other uh, colleagues across campus to do it. Uh, Best I, I crossover tried- story ever. <laughs> 
Right, and I, I've tried to do this before. So, for example, the library here, uh, the library fines um, are paid in U.S. dollars, and the students have to pay this in U.S. dollars. But there's one week in April towards the end of the year where students are allowed to pay for their library fines by donating food to the food pantry. Uh, so there's there's a, a that particular program. So I thought, well, why not have the students be able, you know, for a particular week or a particular, you know, month or whatever, pay their library fines with DVDs, with the useful productive work that they do in the community. Uh, the, the library was very excited about the idea and they loved it, but the, the VP of finance at the time saw real dollars disappearing. <laughs> so oh. he... He had, but but that particular VP has since retired, so I'm looking forward to talking to the new VP and see if I can convince him for at least doing this for a day. It doesn't have to be a whole week. Um, but essentially creating other uh, taxes and fines on campus that can be paid in this currency and as a result expanding uh, the circulation of the currency. Um, so far, we're doing this also uh, uh, on paper, so paper dollar bills, and the hope is to develop uh, an app where we can do this electronically and organizations can directly pay students uh, on their phone. And, and this way, we can have a better tracking of who's doing what, where, and um, and, and have a, a geospatial dimension to, to the circulation of the currency. Um, so there's quite a few of us in the MMT community who are talking behind the scenes about developing this app. So more on this soon, hopefully. Oh, good. And I guess this is kind of my um, my last question, and I know Will has a couple of things. But as someone who owns a manufacturing company, and I, my company, we export about 80% of what we build. So we do business all over the world. And I'm forever amazed that none of the MMT, at none of the MMT centers, so to speak, do I see anybody who has a deep, background in manufacturing and not just from an academic perspective but actual you know experience in manufacturing and have I missed something and if not am I wrong that there might be value in finding someone to help guide the academic thinking around modern industrial development because when you talk about um, for instance in Tunisia looking for industries which would be a more positive force than the ones that you have. There are people out there, there are a ton of really qualified manufacturing experts out there that could be genuinely helpful. And if they had a background in MMT, they could bring those things together. And it just seems to me that that's an area, every so often I hear something coming out of the mouth of someone in MMT that as a manufacturer, it doesn't, you know, it's one of those things, it's like, no, that's not quite right. And I actually know that's not quite right. And it's not just me that knows that's not quite right. It's basically everybody who runs a manufacturing company is listening to that, you know, that little thing, whatever that one little, you know, anecdote or whatever is, and thinking, no. <laughs> right. Well, do, do you mind giving a, a particular example so we can talk about it? And, and I, I agree with you. I mean, as I said earlier, we're, we're outnumbered. <laughs> we're understaffed and underfunded as a community. Yeah. And, and there's, we're, we're barely beginning to draw these connections to people outside of the academic circles, thanks to social media and these 
I mean, you and I wouldn't have, you know, ever met and had this conversation without social media. Um, right. So we're, we're barely beginning to break into that space. Um, not, o- not only uh, in terms of uh, connecting with other disciplines in, the, in, in, in academia. I mean, we have quite a few legal scholars and environmental scientists and other people who are beginning and people in the humanities. Um, which would have been impossible again without social media. But but you're right in terms of connecting with people in the business world in the manufacturing world. We we don't have those connections yet. So so if you don't mind, if you have an example, let's let's talk about it. I I'm desperately trying to remember. I I just as I was looking through my notes last night from the conference, um, yeah. I I Warren had said something and I wrote. Um, manufacturers don't agree with that, and but I have no idea. I would literally have to go back and watch his presentation and pair it yeah. up with what he said. Uh, but uh, and it's, I think uh, I probably meant to ask a question. You do if if you ever find those those bits and pieces of uh, of uh, of concepts and issues that that those of us in the MMT community need to uh, think more carefully about. Please bring them to our attention because. Uh, we're not. We don't claim to have discovered all the knowledge in, in the universe. We have this basic lens that we're using to look at different areas of the economy in different countries, and 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 it's all. I mean, the devil is in the detail. Yeah, because it's not, it's not it's none of the big things. It's some every so often there'll just be like a little small thing that I'll stub my toe on as I'm going along. It's like, oh no, not quite. And so you're right. I should say something as opposed to just saying it to myself. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Will, I know you had some questions. So yes, I, I do have a few questions. One of the things that I, I've I've watched a bunch of interviews with you on YouTube. And one of the things that you're really excellent at uh, doing is talking about messaging. Um, and not only talking about messaging for those of us in the MMT community, but the way that various movements have done messaging on economic thought, whether it's folks within the Arab Spring or Occupy Wall Street or the various other groups and movements that have been out there. And you mentioned earlier in the interview that the way that the neoliberals won their fight was by having it in the streets. So what do you see as the way forward for winning that messaging war and waking people up to the realities of economics um, about about MMT, where they've been hearing these lies about there is no alternative for such a long time? Right. So this is, um, uh, thank you for the question. This is actually extremely important, Uh, not just for MMT, but, you know, progressive public policy in general. MMT happens to be one of those, you know, concepts that helps us answer, you know, how do you pay for it? I mean, even our friends in the progressive movement and people who care about the environment and climate change and poverty say, yeah, it'll be great to have all this renewable stuff. It'll be great to do this and that. It'll be great to have free free education and free health care, but we can't afford it, right? We have to tax somebody in order to, to pay for it. Um, so... Um, my my hope with with what we're doing at the Benzaga Institute and, and and other institution who are trying to to push for a progressive policy agenda is that not only we're able to produce the sophisticated policy ideas and theoretical ideas and, and do the empirical studies um, kind of the groundwork for for this stuff, but also be able to 
communicate our ideas in short, brief, you know, one pager policy notes that says, here's a problem, here's why it's important, and here's an alternative solution to it, alternative to the mainstream kind of uh, uh, think tanks type of uh, ideas, alternatives to neoliberalism. Uh, but that's in writing, and not everybody is, you know, good at uh, grasping ideas in writing. And, and the world today is, is, you know, social media world is very visual, is very video and infographics oriented. Um, so we need to have the funding and resources and the skills to invade the social media world with very short, brief pieces, you know, videos, animations, infographics, memes. I mean, there's quite a bit of this already happening. But I'm talking about, you know, the highest level of, you know, professional quality production. Right. Uh, and and we, we've started doing this kind of amateurish style. And I'm, I'm not an expert in video production. And quite a few people in the academic world are, are not. Um, so we have the ideas. Uh, and it's, it's about finding, uh, number one, the funding to hire professional companies to do this kind of work. Uh, but any any professional, you know, infographics person or, or video production person, by design, will not be trained in economics. By design, will not be trained in, in MMT or any of this stuff. So you have to sit down and and kind of translate the ideas and help them, you know, understand uh, the message. And and once we find a critical mass of talented um, media production and PR people who know exactly what this is about. Then, then that will be a turning point, I think, in the messaging world as far as MMT is concerned. Um, because when when you think of the, the neoliberal movement, um, it it came in the aftermath of the welfare state. So the welfare state of the fifties and sixties and seventies um, was, you know, heavily supported by the working class, the middle class, the the upper income group. Because this comes in the aftermath of the Great Depression. And most people growing up in that generation know the miseries of the Great Depressions. If they didn't live through it, their parents and grandparents taught them about, you know, how the world was uh, during the Great Depression. Um, but by the time you get to the 70s, you start seeing, you know, a, a much younger generation that's more open to alternative ideas. But then the inflation of the 1970s hit, the stagflations, unemployment. And, and high levels of inflation. And throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the neoliberals were not absent. I mean, people like Friedman and Hayek and others, they are around, but they were the minority voice. They were they kept saying, all oh, this big government is going to cause inflation and, and you know, it's going to destroy the wealth of the private sector and all that. So they were, they were always there, but nobody really cared to listen to their ideas because it, it was nonsense for, for the average person. It was very counterintuitive. But in the 70s, when people were really hit hard by inflation and unemployment, it's, it's sort of like what we saw with Trump and, and, uh, and Bernie Sanders in recent years. People were willing to try anything else. And that's where the messaging of the neoliberals was very successful. Uh, the Hayek's and the Friedman's and, and the Koch Brothers Institutes came in and said, aha, we told you so. All that big government spending, all that big federal government debt, is is now destroying the economy. We told you it's, we told you it's going to destroy the private sector. We told you it's going to cause inflation. Now here's the way to do it. We need to privatize and 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 of course the the Cold War context politically also helped with the messaging because it right. was also about you know, slippery slope to communism and all that stuff. 
Um, so the the historical context, the the media uh, effort, the the messaging. I mean, there were you know, uh, Bill Mitchell talks about uh, using social psychology to message certain ideas. And I'm not an expert in social psychology. I, I know in, in, it's effective in certain ways, but but we don't have a critical mass of media people who understand this deeply and and have the commitment to do it. And we don't have the funding to, you know, to do what the Koch brothers did in the 70s and 80s. But we're we're slowly gaining, you know, traction in, in those areas. Um, and uh, again, what we're trying to do with the Benzaga Institute is really draw as many non-economist as possible to draw our team. So we have people from uh, the humanities and communication and and engineering and, and political science and philosophy to help us build a different kind of narrative. Um, first in writing and then um, in, in producing short videos, uh, short short vlogs, you know, video blogs, um, and, and hopefully more animation as we as we move for, move forward. Um, the, the group uh, that's you're probably familiar with it, MMT Basics, has a, a very nice series of uh, MMT Basics videos that were released over the last couple of months. Uh, that's a step. That's a huge step in the right direction. Yeah. And uh, I, I keep saying we're we're just understaffed and underfunded, and there's only so much we can do in 24 hours. And yeah. For sanity. Um, but but that's uh, number one. We recognize the issues. And we know where our um, our work needs to be directed. Uh, we need way more graduate students, and and so far there's only a handful of places that produce academics who think this way. Um, and and we need more. We need to break into the media space with you know high level you know by high level I mean uh, mainstream media uh, journalists uh, on TV and and writing. Who understand MMT and can you know pitch the ideas and engage in debates in different ways? Um, we also need you know more policymakers who actually understand this um, and and either say it publicly or at least understand it and act accordingly. You don't have to say it publicly. I mean, it's it's amazing how many policymakers when when you sit down and talk to them one on one behind closed doors, they they get. They get the message, they understand it, but then they say, "I can't say this publicly. The the, the media is going to eat me alive. I mean, I'm going to be destroyed." Uh, and by the way, this is true for both Republicans and Democrats. Right. There are Republicans who get this and say, "I can't say this publicly. They're, they're, they're going to destroy me." So what they say is, you know, if we get to a critical mass of people in the general public and especially in the media who get this, then maybe I can come out and say it. And to which I always say, well, if, if we have a critical mass of people in media who understand this, then we'll vote you out of office. <laughs> we don't need you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. But but we're we're getting there. I mean, I'm. Uh, I, I don't want you to think that I'm pessimistic. Earlier, I had this pessimism about not in my lifetime. Uh, but I think we're we're getting to a, a a certain level of a critical mass to break into the mainstream media to break into uh, policy circles. Um, I'm, I'm very excited about a, a whole number of uh, political candidates running for office this this election season at the local level, at the national level, who are coming out of the 2016 um, kind of shock and awe that, that happened in this country. Yeah. And quite a few of them are, are thinking differently and thinking MMT and thinking Green New Deal and thinking in a um, much more you know hopeful way. Um, well, and... 
and the Huffington Post and Bloomberg sent people to the MMT conference. Right, right. So, you know? we're, and as, as we said, Rush Limbaugh is talking about MMT. Um, so quite a few people are going to look up MMT and a handful of smart people will, will read carefully. Not everybody, but some people will, will read and engage. And first they'll be, you know, like, like most people who discovered MMT, at first it's frustrating. Uh, it sounds counterintuitive and not logical, but, but you keep, you keep reading and keep digging you keep trying to find answers until all your questions and all your confusions are, are cleared away. Um, uh, those of you who are interested in this, uh, Mr. Saeed Benzager, who is the, the founder of the Benzager Institute, when, when we did our first conference here at Denison, uh, he spoke at the conference for about five or ten minutes and explained how he came to discover this. And, and his story is, is really interesting. He said, you know, all the explanations that he found about inequality and social justice and the 2008 financial crisis came from the mainstream. And it you know, after trying and trying and trying to find other alternatives, he was sort of led to believe that that's it. There is no alternative. That's the way it is. Um, and then he said, as he was watching one of the, I don't know, Friedman or Ian Rand videos on YouTube, YouTube also said, you know, watch also this. And that was an interview with Warren Mosler. And he said he watched it and it made him angry. He thought this is completely wrong. This is completely confused. And he said he watched it over and over again, probably 25 times straight, trying to find something illogical, something wrong in what Warren was saying, and he couldn't find anything <laughs> wrong. And that, that began kind of the journey of frustration at first, which is trying to read and you know figure out how, how, how come this was never brought into the mainstream of, of public policy debates, this completely logical, sound, descriptive approach to looking at the system. So it, 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 it will be frustrating for a lot of people. I mean, when you talk to Steve uh, Grumbine, um, the, the founder of Real Progressives, I mean, he came from the far right. Yeah. He, he was not part of the, the kind of the, the, the blue progressive movement. Uh, and it was frustrating and upsetting for him to, to hear this you know, alternative way of thinking about how the system works. But he did his homework and he engaged with people and he asked the questions and he challenged everybody until he was able to um, get, you know, every single aspect of this, of this approach. Um, so th th just those two examples give me a lot of hope that when people really care and really want to understand, they will not stop at the superficial, oh, MMT is about hyperinflation or MMT is just the government printing money. Uh, which is what, you know, the casual dismissal, dismissal of, uh, that, that you hear sometimes. Or, or some of the shallow articles yeah. and blogs that you read sometimes, oh, these MMT people don't care about inflation. Or if anything, in the economics profession, I truly believe the group that really cares and understands inflation the most is yeah. the MMT group. <laughs> yeah. uh, if, I mean, the, to, to prove this point, I mean, the last 10 years since 2008, if you look at what the ECB, what the Fed, what the Bank of Japan have been doing, is they've been trying to hit this inflation target of 2%, and they've tried everything in their you know, toolbox to create inflation, and they couldn't, because they th the things they thought would create inflation don't actually create inflation. Yeah. Uh, every time somebody is fighting with me on Twitter about, uh, about inflation, one of, the, one of the points I always come back to is, um, if, listen, if you, if you can actually figure out how to achieve inflation really 
achieve inflation, tell Japan because they've been trying to do it for decades. You know, send a note. Exactly. Exactly. And one of the things I found has been really effective in these discussions is everybody thinks that the, the creation of money causes inflation. So what I have done both in person and online that's been extremely effective is like, let me show you one chart. And I go to the chart of the M0 money supply since the 1950s. And you see yeah. in 2009, it just skyrockets. And I point to that chart and say, look, if it was true that the creation of money caused inflation, the U.S. dollar would be worthless. Look at the chart. Look at the amount of money we created. Right. right. And that's, that's all you need to do to get people to say, wait, wait a minute. Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, this is really the, the power of uh, the, the narrative that the neoliberal movement has been able to engrave into, into our minds, that, that inflation phobia that, that keeps coming back. Uh, and, it, and it doesn't matter what the theory behind it is. It's the narrative that wins. Yeah, that's why well, I said they didn't win in theoretical debates in journals. They won on the narrative front, and that's they started right. with history. Like everybody knows about hyperinflation in Germany. It led to World right. War II. Everybody knows about hyperinflation in Zimbabwe. It's 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 one of the things they keep harkening back to. Um, and well, and, their real win was uh, the federal government is like your checkbook. Yeah, right, right. You know right. that's, that's where what, that's where we lost right there. That's why it's it's extremely important to tackle this issue, not just from an economic standpoint. And this is where our our colleagues um, from the humanities, people like Scott Ferguson and and and, yeah. uh, and Billy Sass and others, their work is extremely important because they're trying to change the narrative in in the world in the universe of literature. Because this is brainwashing generations who are not studying economics but just studying, you know standard literature and watching regular movies and and they've been told and taught over and over again through popular culture these ideas and and that's the other space that's that's extremely important to to tackle uh and and that's why i'm I'm very excited with you know with the the kind of work that uh scott ferguson and billy sass and and other uh scholars in the in the humanities are are engaging in this monumental work to to turn the whole field of humanities on its head when it comes to understanding money and finance and, and capitalism and, and, and all of these uh, um, important issues in the, within the field of humanities, right? Not in public policy or not in economics. Well, and I, I even think, um, I mean, I sort of accidentally got to be known as Arliss Bunny on the web. It was a freak of fate, but um, the when I went to write about modern monetary theory after I um, uh, wanted to write something more than just a post up on Daily Coast, I wrote a little thing and put it up at Amazon, a little uh, short book, The Smart Bunny's Guide to Debt Deficit and Austerity. And it is mostly um, illustrations of a rabbit, a little Arliss bunny. And I read it. Seriously? It's fantastic. Yeah, I love it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to my kids. <laughs> Thank you. But the, <laughs> the little, point but is that it, it's absolutely meant to be just, you know, to take a very small amount of time to be, you know, a little bit silly and a little bit, you know, and be to lower the threshold, basically. Yeah. Oh, and, absolutely. We, we need little booklets and, you know, nighttime stories and things like that. I mean, like uh, Bill Mitchell jokes about the, the, the nightmare stories. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, I mean, little little stories for for kids to to introduce them into a different way of thinking about money and finance, and, and it, it's a it's a it's an all encompassing cultural phenomenon that we're dealing with, and it's not going to be resolved in the economics professional professional alone. Yeah, exactly, and that's when I think somebody like you know Steve Grumbine is you know so valuable, right? Because he has such a big reach in terms of getting to activists and that's where that's where we move this mountain those are the people who move this mountain right and it's and it's really a a a collective effort because you know as they say different horses for for different courses we need people who do it in a funny style we need people who do it in a you know academic style people who do it in a political style people who do it aggressively people who do it you know gently people who do it you know using all kinds of tools because with some people the comedy stuff will click with other people the you know academic stuff will click with other people they need to be you know uh, forced into thinking differently somehow through some sort of uh, uh, horror movie or something I don't know <laughs> uh, but it's you know different things will, will work uh, with with different people yeah yeah and I just I think it's I I, I really think that um, you know, when I, I am really excited, actually, about how uh, millennials are taking to this and mm-hmm. how easy it is for them, because they're not already, most of them are not already preloaded and so deeply bathed in the neoliberal um, meme. They've heard it, they've seen it, but they're not married to it in the same way that my generation is. And. I would blame alternative media for the reason for that. We have Twitter and Facebook and can look at things that aren't in the media environment that the Cokes and the others control. Uh, so I, I think that there's a ticking clock here that the neoliberal nonsense is going to, you know, lose in time if we do our jobs right. Yeah, it's just a matter of time. Well, Fadil, thank you so, so, so much for spending an enormous, such an enormous amount of time with us today. But uh, I just, I guess, and uh, this is, uh, I cheated this by talking to you about this before the show, but it is a little bit like asking you to marry me on a Jumbotron, but uh, I would love to have you come back and talk to all of us about the political economy of the Arab uprisings, because you are... um, really brilliant and so well informed on that and and bring to it a perspective that I haven't heard and that um, I think a lot of our listeners would really be fascinated by so uh, I'll, be, I'll be happy to do it and it's it's been a pleasure such an uh, interesting uh, conversation and I hope it's it's useful for uh, for the listeners um, and I'll, I'll be happy to engage in uh, similar conversations about MMT job guarantee or or, and, and definitely come back for a uh, for a separate discussion on on the Arab uprisings because that's that's a whole thing to to unpack um, on its own. Exactly. Thank you so much, folks. You've been listening to Hopping Mad. Uh, you can find Will on uh, Twitter at Will McLeod ninety nine. You can find me at Arliss Bunny. You can find our website at I'mHoppingMad.com. Fadil, again, thank you very 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 much for being here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure.